Uh, we're going to go to the Word, and so if you guys want to open up your Bibles, please. Um, we are in the last sermon, I believe, of, uh, no, the second last sermon of uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, so please open up to 1 Timothy. It's the very last chapter, chapter 6. And I'm going to read verse 11 and 12. Uh, it should be behind me if you don't have a Bible. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV version, so uh, please follow along as I read this for us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 to 12. Uh, as I read this, please, a reminder, this is the Word of God. But as for you, uh, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Amen. Thanks, Peter. Um, wow, what a um, blast to the past. Right? Who, who was here like, as part of new life right, when new life first started? Right? There's a few of us that would have been around here. Who was part of here like, growing up at Sezun, like high school ministry, who, who passed through this room? Oh, okay, some people did both. Um, who, who came to school here? Okay, just, just one of us. I feel bad to mention he came to school at the school, um, and he thought he could escape it, um, but then we're back here as well. Anyway, um, well, welcome again. Um, I hope the, it's, it's not too like, um, weird and out of the way for you. It's only for a few weeks, and then um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I, I like it. It's kind of nice and cozy, right? And we're all close together. All right. Um, we're going to jump into um, First Timothy, and we're going to continue through the series. Uh, if you're writing notes, uh, today's sermon title is uh, The Godly Life. The Godly Life. Now, a bunch of years ago, uh, I went on one of the Korea mission trips that, you know, our, back then our church, New Life, used to send out, and I went with a team, and I was with them, I think maybe like a, a week or a week and a half. And um, during that time, I ended up calling uh, one of the guys there a nickname. I can't remember where it came from, uh, but the nickname I gave him was Man of God, right? <laughs> I don't know where it came from. And so whenever he'd do something kind of vaguely Christian, I'd be like, oh, you man of God, right? And I'd shake my head. And you know, it was obviously a joke, right? Man of God, because it's, it's such a heavy title, right? It's such a grand um, name to carry around for yourself, to be called a man of God, right? Even right now on my phone, that guy is first name surname. And it's a joke, right? It's a joke. Imagine someone introduced you to a friend and they were like, hey, this is my friend. He's a man of God, but she's a woman of God. That's such a heavy title to carry. But who would ever, you know, want to be called that? Who would even refer to themselves in that way? And yet, as we come to this passage, as we close up the uh, letter of First Timothy, what we find is that the Apostle Paul actually uses this title to talk about us. Right, if you look here in verse 11, he says, But as for you, O man of God, right, flee these things. He's talking to the church here, he's talking to you, he's talking to me, and the title he gives us is Man of God. And yet, Paul here is not joking like I was. He's serious when he calls you, right, he's going to introduce you as man or woman of God. Now the phrase man of God doesn't just mean a godly man, it's much heavier than that. If you look in the Old Testament, the title man of God was used to refer to those who were particularly called by God to do particularly wonderful things. People like Moses was called a man of God. King David was a man of God. The prophets, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, they were 
men of God. And Paul takes his title, and as he comes to the church, as he wraps up his letter to make his final exhortations, he reminds us that this is a kind of, uh, I guess, title that we are to aspire to. Right? That's the bar for the Christian. Right? And I know maybe not a lot of us think of ourselves as men or women of God, but that's exactly how we are to think of ourselves. We are to strive to match that title to be people of God. Now, it's not that if we don't hit that you know, kind of bar that God doesn't love us. Right? It's not, that's not how it works. You know, God still loves us in Christ Jesus. He approves of us if we believe in him. But from that security of knowing we are loved and approved and forgiven, we're trying to strive to be who God calls us to be. And who God calls us to be is to be men and women of God. And so as Paul closes up his letter and calls us to that kind of high bar, he commands us four things. Right, these are the four things you and I are meant to do. Right, they're, all, they're all going to start with F. We are to flee, we are to follow, we are to fight, and we are to fast. Right, so we're going to go through each of these four things today. The first, right, I'm going to put them in pairs. So the first two is flee and follow. Right, this is what a man of God or a woman of God does. This is what it looks like to be godly people. This is what it looks like to be a godly church. We flee and then we follow. Right, let's look at flee. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Right, what are these, these things that Paul is talking about? I want to ask you, if you were studying the Bible, you're reading the Bible, and you came to this verse and you said, what's, what's these things? Right, how would you figure that out? You go, oh, okay. Oh, that was a rhetorical, but thank you. <laughs> that's it, that's it. Context. Now that's great. Like as in, that's the way, hopefully the way that we you know, take you through the sermon is that's what you do. You go to the verses before. Right? So that's the answer. So if you go to the verses before, you go to verse 1 to 10, what we find is that Paul had, two weeks ago, Peter preached this. Paul had talked about the false teachers. And the false teachers had chased after certain things. And so Paul has said, the false teachers chased these things, and then verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. They chase these things, but you are to flee these things. And so what did these false teachers chase? Right, just to jog your memory. In verse 3, it was false doctrine. Right, they chased these wrong teachings. Verse 4, it's petty controversies or quarreling. Right, they like to talk about you know, things that aren't that important. And they create division in the church with their quarrels. Verse 4 to 5, that have divisive talk. Right, they slander each other. Right, they cut each other down with their words. Verse 5, they loved money. So these are the things that the false teachers chased. And Paul is saying, you are to flee these things. Right? Flee these things. When you think about that word flee, it's a really strong word. Flee, it means like drop whatever you're doing and get out of there. Right? Run as fast as you can. Paul's not just saying, you know, the false teachers chase these things, but you just have a little bit of it in your life. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you can keep it around you know, just keep it around. It's okay. Paul says, if you see these things in your life, in your vicinity, in your heart, get out of there. Right? It's very strong language. Right? If you see false doctrine, would you flee? If you see quarreling or you, you feel like you are about to quarrel with other people, would you flee? When you see the love of money in your heart, and the reality is I think that's something that we'd all probably struggle with, do you, see, do you think, wow, that's very, very bad, that's very dangerous? I've got to get out of there. I've got to get that out of my life. Right? Do you flee? 
You know, when I read and reflect on this, um, this first verse, I found it curious. Because it seems like Paul is taking these small sins. Right? I don't know about you. When I read them, I originally thought, these are small sins. Paul takes these small sins and he asks for a big response. Flee. If Paul said, like, you know, she wants to lie with him. Do you know that story? Joseph, he drops everything and he flees. He runs away from his boss's wife. He tries to sleep with him. Well, like, we get that one. That makes sense. But Paul here takes these seemingly small sins. And even for these ones, he says you should flee. Right? Isn't that interesting? If you were going for a walk in the park and you saw a kitten, right, how would you respond? Right? I think we'd all respond differently. But maybe you'd be like, ooh, and you'd stop and you'd admire it for a second. Maybe you'd be brave and you'd tickle its head or scratch its chin. Or maybe the least we do, we just ignore it and just whatever, and we just keep walking on. And I think that's how we sometimes treat our small sins. We've got these categories in our lives where we're like, these are the big sins. Oh, no, no way. No one should ever do those ones, and I'm going to avoid those ones. And maybe we've got these regular sins, and these, these are pretty bad, and I'm trying to not have these in my life, but they're not as bad as those ones. And then we've got these small sins. And we've all got different versions of what that means. We've got like a little box, small sins. We scribble it in and we put some things in there that we think is okay to keep around. It's harmless as a kitten. It's okay if I have a little bit of it in my life. It's okay because everyone else does it. Right? It's okay because they do it more than I do. And so we kind of land on a place where we're happy to indulge in these so-called small sins. But Paul's saying no. There's no such thing as a small sin. Even these small sins you should flee from. Christian and pastor, the Apostle Paul, tells Timothy and tells the church of Ephesus, there's no such thing as a small sin. The appropriate response to all sins, even the small ones, is that you should have none of it in your life. That you should escape it. That you should cut it out. That you should flee. You fled. I try to think about the last time I fled from something. When you think about it. I don't know. Right? A volcano, we'd flee. Earthquake, flee. Tsunami, we'd flee. Guy with a gun, flee. A lion, uncaged, flee. Right? I don't remember last time I fled. Paul's saying we should treat these small sins not like harmless kittens, but like they're ferocious lions. If you're walking through a park and you saw a lion, you wouldn't just linger around. You wouldn't be like, oh, and you scratch his head. You wouldn't even just ignore it and keep walking. You'd get out of there. And Paul's saying, get out of there. Even for those small things, those small actions, the things in secret, the things in your mind that you, you, you mull over, that you desire, in your heart even. Don't be content to keep those things around. Flee even from them. You know, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You know, Jesus basically says, we all know we shouldn't murder Right, that's one of those bad ones. No, 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 never, never, never. But then Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you are angry with your brother, you are still under judgment. Right, but then we kind of like, murder's really bad, but angry, oh, that's okay, it's okay, everyone's angry, right? But Jesus is saying no. It's not okay to stay angry and be angry and have that a part of your life. You should fight that just as much as you fight murder. You shouldn't commit adultery, but if you lust after someone, then you've committed adultery in your heart toward them. And lustful intentions just as seriously as adultery. Right? Jesus saying in your life. 
flee from them as well. Right? The problem is not that the Apostle Paul is overreacting. The problem is that we underreact. And so flee. That's the first thing we need to do in this journey of godliness. Flee. Even and especially from the small sins. And so what are some sins, big or small, that you should be fleeing from in your life? Things that you do. Things that you say. Things that you think or desire. And when you look through the Bible, none of it should be ignored. We should treat it all as dangerous. The second part of this is then to follow. We flee and then follow. Verse 11 says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The second command is to pursue or follow. And that also is a strong word. Just as strong as we might flee, right? That's a very strong word. Pursue is like, like I'm chasing after something. Even if it's going to run away or escape from me, I'm going to get it because I have to have it. Right? You pursue your future spouse. Right? They're like, oh, no, I don't want to date you. And you pursue them because I've got to date you. I've got I to marry you. Right? It's that kind of image, right? Godliness is something that we fight for, we pursue, and we chase after even if it feels like it escapes us. So you can see how these are two sides of the same coin. The images of a person who's turning away and running away from these ungodly, sinful things, these temptations, so that they might then go this way, right? And pursue or follow godliness and Christ-likeness. We flee from one, we follow the other. We're against that, we're for that. We turn away and we turn toward and Paul, he says we should pursue these things. Now, the list that Paul gives us, right, righteousness, godliness, it's not an exhaustive list. They're just some examples that Paul is giving at this time. If you go to the second letter uh, that he writes to Timothy, he actually says something very similar there. Right? You see, he says, so flee, same word, youthful passions and pursue. Right? Same idea, you flee and pursue. But the details of what he gives are different. So in that letter, he says flee youthful passions, And then when he says to pursue, he says pursue righteousness, faith, and love. Right, That's what we have in our verse. But then he includes peace. We don't have that in our verse. And then he doesn't have in, we we have in our verse things like um, like godliness and steadfastness and gentleness Right, that he doesn't have here. To kind of see how Paul is just kind of picking and choosing depending on the letter and the situation. And so these six are important, but they're not like these are the six most important things. Right? We are just simply meant to pursue godliness, right? Christ-likeness, whatever that looks like. But if I were to break down these six just to help us understand, this is what it is. Righteousness. We pursue righteousness or follow after it. That's behaving righteously, right? rightly. Right conduct, even when it costs you something. Godliness. Right? We know it's very similar to righteousness, but this idea that we pursue what God wants us to be like, even and above other priorities. We pursue faith. Do you invest the time and the energy necessary that your faith in God is strong? Do you, do you trust God? Well, that's what Paul is calling us to. Love. We go out of our way to sacrificially love. This is the agape love, the love that gives and commits regardless of the kind of response that we might get. And then we have steadfastness. We need to pursue sticking through things that we've committed to. When we've made a promise to God, when we're committed to God, when we said we do something, do we stick through with it right, for the glory of God? 
and then gentleness. To place all your power under control. That even though you might have authority, even though you might have power, you don't you know, use it to you know, kind of enforce it on other people, but you kind of surrender it to be patient and tender toward other people. So Paul gives us this list here, but again, it's not just these six things. It's a general idea of Christ-likeness. Right? Follow after that. And this here is then the image of what godliness looks like. It's, it's simply fleeing from that, and we're following this. Right? Godliness is a line, when you think about it. I, I was, um, it's funny because we're here, this um, blast from the past. I used to preach here, back at PG1, a bunch of you. Um, some of us were, were here as high school students. Um, on the Friday night at Kingsway Away, I was sitting down with Chuan and Max, who were actually high school students when I was the pastor here at PG1, and we are just talking about like, how crazy it is that we're still like, in each other's lives. Right? Twelve years ago, they were in high school, um, and I'd, I'd be their pastor, and we'd talk about, I don't know, algebra, and which girls do you like? And you know, now they've grown up, and they're at work. They're working now. Now we're talking about, like, how's work? You know, and, and what girls do you like? <laughs> I was joking. Um, but just the fact that, you know, it's come so far. And you know, Max was saying how he didn't come to, you know, PG1 at the time. He was at another church, but he popped by every once in a while. And he was saying in passing, you know, but I still remember some of the sermons. I was like, whoa, really? That's 12 years ago. And he's like, yeah, I still remember this one analogy. And he started telling this analogy, and I was just hearing it. I was like, wow, that's a great analogy. <laughs> I was like writing notes. I'm like, yeah, what did I say? <laughs> This is the analogy, right? It just fits perfectly, right? I'd say credit to them. This is the analogy, right? Godliness is a line. When we think of godliness as a line, we tend to think of it as a line like this, right? It's a line like this, where it goes from here to here. And it's a line that divides between right and wrong. That's what godliness is. So if I do the right things, I'm, I'm godly. And if I go over here and I do the bad things, this ungodly. And we tend to think of godliness as a line. But the problem with that is that we then tend to stick as close to the line as we can without going over it. Because we don't want to sin, because that's bad. But then we also want to enjoy as much, you know, whatever worldliness that we can. So we stick as close as we can, and this is how we treat godliness. So we think about um, dating, for example. Often the question is, when you're dating someone, where's the line? And the reason we ask where's the line between what's right and what's wrong, what we can and can't do, is because we want to then stick as close to the line as we can without going over it. And so what can I do? Can, I, can we kiss? Yeah, kissing's okay, right? And, you know, whatever. Can we touch? Where can we touch? How long can we touch? And there's all these kind of things that we figure out, and we figure out exactly where the line is, and we're like, Ooh, this is exactly where I'm going to stay. But, you know, I'm sure a lot of us know this doesn't work. You're just one step away from sin. Right, so you stay in a, like, a private place where it's dark and there's no one around you know, with romantic music, watching a romantic you know, movie and you're kissing and you're, you're going to stay right here, aren't you? That's not how it works. You're just one step away from sin. But I think we tend to do that with to kind of general godliness. We all figure out where the line is for us. And this is where the small sins come in, right? And we're like, I think godliness is here and I'm happy to just stay, put the line here and I'm going to stay right here. And I'm not as bad as the people over there. I may not be as good as the people over here, but this is good, right? This is good. I've changed a bit. I do enough good things. At least in the external, people are pretty impressed with me. I'm going to settle right here. But when Paul describes godliness in our passage, 
Godliness is a line, but it's not a line like this, right? Godliness is not a line that divides, it's a line that directs. So it goes like this. Godliness goes like that. And it's an arrow that points this way. And the way we should treat godliness is then we are fleeing from that direction and the sins and the temptations that may come over here that we might pursue that. And we keep striving along that line. Right? It's a line that doesn't divide. It's a line that directs, directs you toward a certain place. So when Paul calls us to flee and he calls us to follow, he calls us to follow down a direction and keep pushing in that direction. Because I think all of us can find something in our lives, whether, even if it's our thoughts, even if it's something in our hearts that we love a bit too much, that we should flee from. We all have some of those things, our small sins. And we all have areas where we can strive to be more Christ-like. But maybe we stop trying. And I think after a while, after being Christian for a while, we, we kind of settle. We're kind of happy with where we're at. But that's not what Paul says. There's a lion over there. Flee and pursue godliness. Every one of us have an area. Godliness looks like that. It's kind of simple, right? It's flee. And it's, as Paul says, it's to fight and to fasten. Right? And I think this describes how we go about this journey. Right? If you decide that I'm going to flee from certain things, I'm going to follow after Jesus in order to do it properly. Fight. Paul says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Again, strong word. Fight. Think about it. It's like, the Greek word for fight was often used for two kind of images. One was of an athlete. Right? They're kind of straining and fighting right? as they um, exercise and as they discipline their body to you know, get the gold medal. The other was of a soldier at war. Right? They're fighting in war. And I think... Paul might be actually talking about both of these because Paul uses both of these images in his letters. So what's it look like then to fight like an athlete? Fighting like an athlete is a call to work. Work hard. Put in the effort. Put in the, 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 the grind. Right? Don't give up. That's what it looks like to fight like an athlete. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul describes a Christian life like an athlete. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you might obtain it. Right? There's a prize that's waiting for the athlete. It's like um, for them back then, it was a piece of leaf that they'd, I think it was a piece of celery that they'd wrap around their head. And Paul's saying, but for us, our prize is eternal life. Right? It's the pleasure of God. It's, it's to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our prize. How much better is that than you know, a piece of celery on your head? But even the athlete runs in a way and trains himself that they might get the prize. Verse 25, he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, that's the celery, but we an imperishable, right, the crown of life. So I do not run aimlessly I do, and keep it under control, lest after I preach it to others, I myself should be disqualified. But you see the words here, self-control. I don't run aimlessly. I discipline my body. I keep it under control. All of this is this idea of an athlete putting in the hard work to make sure that they're a step closer to that you know, celery or the gold medal and not going backwards. And when you think about athletes, it's such a grueling um, kind of occupation. They've got to sacrifice and you know, not eat uh, pizza and chocolate cake when everyone around them might be doing. Oh, that's the temptations and they've got to say no to that. 
They don't wake up very early in order to hit the gym and exercise. And they do that over and over again. And it's such a, a disciplined and sacrificial um, kind of lifestyle. They've got to eat healthy. They've got to push themselves. And Paul's saying that is the Christian life. It's hard work. It's sacrifice. It's saying no to things that maybe everyone else is doing. It's pursuing the things that are healthy, that might not be easy. Don't give in to temptation. You need to fight so we can get the prize just like the athlete. You know, we don't just fall into spiritual health. We don't stumble into being healthy Christians any more than you will stumble into physical health. You don't just wake up one day and we're like, whoa, I got a six-pack. You know, that just it came out of nowhere. It doesn't happen that way, unfortunately. It happens the other way. You know hard work. It's like, oh, whatever, I got a one-pack. Um, it goes the other way. Without the hard work, you go backwards. And the same for the Christian life. We don't just happen to wake up spiritually strong and healthy. It's hard work. You wake up, you've you got to read the Bible, you've got to pray, you've got to surround yourself with good people, or you've got to read things, you've got to fight to say no to sin. You've got to fight to be a godly person. Hard work. So Paul says, you want to do this, where you flee and you follow, you've got to fight for it. You've got to fight like an athlete. If you're unwilling to fight, if you're unwilling to put in the hard work, don't expect to grow in Christ-likeness. It won't just happen. Now the bonus for the Christian is we don't do it by ourselves. God is helping us. The Spirit is within us, strengthening us, convicting us. We have people around us, hopefully. Right? This is what the church is for. Athlete. Not only do we fight like an athlete, we fight like a soldier. If fighting like an athlete is a call to work, then fighting like a soldier is a call to war. When you think about warfare and soldiers, Paul is saying this is the Christian life. Right? Paul had actually talked about warfare in chapter 1. He said to Timothy, wage the good warfare. It's a strong language. Again, war, it's not something to laugh about. It's not something to ignore. It's very serious. But Paul takes that image and says, this is the Christian life. Wage the good warfare. In 2 Timothy, his next letter, again, he talks about the Christian life like a soldier. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please. Paul's saying a soldier is focused on a more important and urgent task. So they don't get involved with just the everyday things that normal people might worry about and get involved with. You can imagine, if, if Australia went to war, a lot of the things that we used to worry about would not matter anymore. We would realize that they're not important. Or maybe even if they are important, they're not important anymore. Right? Because priorities shift, and when you're at war, other things are more urgent and important. And Paul says a Christian is like a soldier at war, and we're at a spiritual war, and we're waging war for souls. And the more important task is the things of eternity. It's of your faith and whether you're going to hit it to the end. It's whether the people around you are going to keep fighting as Christians and make it to the end. It's whether other people around us who don't yet know Jesus will come to know Jesus and have a relationship with him and they might be saved for eternity. That's the more important and urgent task. So Paul says, fight like a soldier understands that this is what's at stake. This is the good fight of faith. You know, Paul calls it the good fight of faith. Isn't that interesting? 
Because this is the, the fight worth fighting for. This is the good fight. People are fighting for many things in life, putting in a lot of energy for certain things that Paul would say is not the good fight. You're fighting, yes, but it's not for the good thing. The good fight is the fight for souls. The good fight is the fight for eternity. Only a couple of verses before in verse 10, Paul had talked about how some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. People in the the verses before had chased after these things that Paul had said to flee. They chased the love of money. They chased, you know, being, you know, false doctrine and quarreling. And they've ended up leaving Jesus. And Paul's saying, make sure you're not like that. Right? Fight that you don't become like that. One beautiful thing is that the Apostle Paul, he lived this life. But not only does he tell Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, but in the next letter, he says, I've done it. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And what a wonderful thing to be able to say at the end of your life. It's not easy. The Apostle Paul's life was not easy. It was anything but. A lot of persecution, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of suffering. I'm sure a lot of moments where he might have just wanted to quit. But he kept going. He fought like like a soldier so he could say at the end, I did it. I fought the good fight. I got to the end. And as we journey in this life, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be temptations. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be moments where you have spiritual lows. There's going to be hard times in your life. My desire and prayer for you is that you will fight and not give up. That you'll surround yourself with your fellow soldiers. That you will keep pushing on. That at the end, we might be able to say, we fought the good fight. We finished the race. We kept our faith. We need to fight in order to do this. Not only do we need to fight in order to flee and follow, we also need to fasten. Paul says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Right? Take hold. Take hold means grasp. Right? Or I said fasten because it starts with F. Right? To hold on to something, to cling to it. It's a word used when, in Acts 21 when the crowd, they seized Paul right, and dragged him out of the temple. It's, it's kind of a violent word. It's the word when uh, Peter tries to walk on water toward Jesus who's standing on water and Peter begins to sink. And Jesus, he takes a hold of Peter to save his life even because his life depended on it. And Paul is saying in a similar way, grip onto, take hold of your eternal life. Don't let it go as if your life depended on it. Grip it with all that you've got. Now in one hand, Timothy already has eternal life. It's not like he's, he's not sure about where he's going to spend eternity. I mean, that, that's secure. And for all of us, if we believe in Jesus, right, you're going to go to heaven, you're going to spend eternity with God, right, that you don't have to worry about that. What Paul's talking about is that this eternal reality should be held onto in your everyday so it becomes a, a present reality. You know, so it's like a, something that really matters to me right now. Because those things that we say we believe about, you know, where I'm going to spend the rest of my life, you know, heaven's my home, 
you know, everything on earth, you know, it's going to fade away, but, you know, I've got rewards in heaven. These things of our eternal life, sometimes they're just like, like ideas, like floating around that we pull, pull down for a Bible study and give the right answer. But as we live day to day and make daily decisions, as we go to work and decide, like, I don't know, well, where am I going to spend my money or where am I going to get my job or, you know, what am I going to pursue? Those things are meant to then kind of make an impact into your everyday life. These eternal realities are meant to become. Pray and remember and remind yourself so you don't get distracted by life around you. You don't get distracted of you know, why you're really living and where you're heading toward. Because if we really held on to our eternal life, we would live such different lives. So Paul's saying, if you're going to try to flee from those things that everyone else is chasing, and you're going to follow after God when no one else is doing it, well, you better hold on to eternal life and believe in it. Or else you won't. Right? We don't give up. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's like our, our heart, who we are as Christians, our godly self. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Right? This is an eternal reality that should shape our present day. Our light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we're struggling through life, what this verse is saying is, I know it seems very tough, I know it seems unbearable, but it's light and it's momentary. It's not as heavy as, I guess, the suffering that you might face without Jesus or an eternity without him, and it's momentary. It will pass. But what's waiting for you is an eternity. And there you will be rewarded and everything that you've lost and everything that you've suffered will not compare to what you will gain. But remembering that today in the midst of struggle is what matters. Not just, oh, I read this verse. But when you're going through tough times to really grasp onto this eternal truth, this light momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That will make the difference between you giving up on your journey for godliness, or whether you will persevere. He says, verse 18, we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Right? This is what we're doing. We're gripping onto these eternal realities that we can't see, so that they might be real to me today. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This life is a small dot compared to the eternity we're going to spend with God in heaven. Everything on this earth, no matter how big of a kind of pile of good things we might amass, we will leave it all behind. And the only things that will last is what we take here and we invest into eternity. Right? We know all these truths, but we need to hold on to them for our present day. Are you fighting the good fight of faith like an athlete called to ask at hand? Right? The fight for souls. Now you're fastening yourself to your eternal life and all the eternal realities that God has given to you. This journey of godliness where we flee and follow and we're fighting along the way and holding on to eternal life, it's not easy. Right? It's tough. It seems simple, right? You just get four words starting with F. And it's, oh, you know, we're going to all memorize this in 10 seconds and we leave. That's not the problem. It's, it's really, really doing it. And, and it's tough. You might have heard um, of this incident that happened, I think a week or two ago. Uh, a man named Andrew Thorburn, um, 
he got a role as the CEO of Essendon, which is an AFL um, club. But on the first day of his job as CEO, there was this big outcry from, I guess, society uh, because Andrew Thorburn was attending a church and also the chair of a church that nine years ago uh, preached a sermon about abortion and homosexuality. It's not he didn't say anything. He goes to a church and he's a chair of a church where the pastor of the church, nine years ago, said something about abortion and homosexuality. Um, and people found it, big issue, people tweeting this and that, um, kind of, I guess, big, big name people tweeting this and that. And so on the first day of his job, um, he was given an ultimatum. You can either keep your job and quit your position in the church, or you can keep your position in church and you quit your job. And so he quit his job so he could stay as a chair of his church. But this is a big thing. I don't know if you've heard it. It's, like, it's, like, it's huge because like, it's not something he said. It's something his church said. And as I heard that, I don't know if you've heard that, man, that made me think a lot like, about you and me and Kingsway and what the future of being a Christian will look like in Sydney. Now, I don't know affiliation with Kingsway would mean one day down the track 10, 20 years ago because of a sermon I preached sometime in the past or one of our pastors preached, you will suffer and you might have to quit your job or they might not give you a promotion because of, I guess, what we believe is biblical. And we preached it and we said it. Right? The godly life and striving after godliness as God has defined it, it's not easy. Right? Paul had talked about false doctrine and we should flee from it. And the understanding is that we then hold on to true doctrine and we teach it and preach it. But even then, that's hard and that comes at a cost. In many other ways, including this, the path of godliness to flee and to follow is costly, whether from the outside world demanding you to give up things or whether for you as in yourself to give up things. It's costly. It's a narrow gate. The way is hard. You know, if I put myself into Andrew Thorburn's shoes, I, I, I don't know if I could have made that decision to give up what would have been like a lucrative, I think his dream job, really, and to stay at a chair of a church unless... You were willing to fight, and you really were fastening to eternal realities. Uh, unless you were really believing that all of the benefits that would have come with that job are not as important as you know, the church and what the church is about and the preaching of the gospel and the saving of souls. Right? That war, that war is more important. And unless he really held on to his eternal realities, knowing that everything on this earth would... Unless you really fight and fast it, I don't know if you'd make those decisions. I I don't know him personally. I'm not saying um, I know his spiritual health, but at least for me, I think that's what it would take. And that's what it takes for you. As you flee and follow, as you fight for godliness, you need to do these things. And so I don't know how God might challenge you this week in the pursuit of godliness. Maybe he wants you to flee even the small sins. Maybe he wants you to follow, pressing more and more toward Christ-likeness. Maybe he wants you to fight. Fight like an athlete, putting the hard work in. Or fight like a soldier, thinking about what's more important. Or maybe he wants you to hold on to your eternal realities a bit more. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure there's something we can all do this week. Why don't we close our eyes and let's pray.
as we pray, I just want to remind us that this whole idea of us fleeing and following after Jesus, it doesn't make us loved. It doesn't mean God is happier with us because, you know, we're more godly than other people. You know, God loves us because of what Christ has done. Because from that moment on, we're loved. From that moment on, we're forgiven. From that moment on, we're children of God. But, but as children of God, we're striving to become like our Father. And maybe I want to invite us to just to pray for two things. First, would you commit yourself to, to flee the sins in your life and to follow after God? To make that commitment in your heart and decide that you're going to pursue godliness. Even though it's hard, even though it's risky, even though it costs you, God, I'm willing to commit myself to you, to turn my back on other loves and temptations, to chase after you and really try to see your beauty and to emulate and model that to the rest of the world. And as you pray and commit yourself to God, maybe there's an area that God wants you to particularly surrender to Him. Maybe you're being lazy, you need to commit to this. Um, Maybe you need to read your Bible more so the eternal realities become present realities. Why don't we just pray for these things and then let God challenge us. Let's pray.